If you have your Bibles, and we hope you do, would you please turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, this morning we continue our series that we started several weeks ago entitled Goodbye God. And we launched into this series together as a church to address a statistical report that came out earlier this year by the Barna Group. And in that report, it discovered that one out of every four Americans now identify themselves as either an atheist or an agnostic. One who doesn't know if God exists or not, and one who adamantly believes that there is no God at all. And when we begin to look at why they have moved to such a position, there were three issues that stood out considerably. Number one was their lack of trust within the Bible. Is the Bible actually God's word or just a work of man's hands? Secondly, the church. What is the purpose of the church? Why go to church? The church is seen as corrupted. It is seen as uh, full of hypocrisy. And the church has lost, in many ways, its credibility within the world. And thirdly, their objection was the world itself. Haven't we explained away Christianity sufficiently enough? We felt that it was necessary to answer these questions. And by answering these questions, we wanted to not only give answers to our skeptical friends, and that is who I would consider these individuals to be skeptics, but also to equip you to be able to answer anyone who has a question that they level towards you. And this morning we are in our third session concerning the Bible, addressing that first issue. Can we trust the Bible? Is the Bible God's word? And one of their objections is the supernatural element of the Bible. If it is supernatural in its origin, then it needs to be looked at in a certain way. If it is not, if it's completely a natural work of man's hands then it can be readily dismissed as just another work of man's hands. This morning we will try to answer that question. This morning we hope to demonstrate for you the supernatural aspect of the Bible. There is no doubt that the Bible has had the greatest impact in the world as a book. There is no book in the world that has had a greater impact upon it than the Bible. In fact, throughout the history of the Bible, each culture that it has touched has to deal with the claims that the Bible makes. In the last 2,000 years, those claims have to do with the person of Jesus Christ. The claims have to do with the Bible being the Word of God. The claims have to do with the role that the Bible plays in the life of the believer as their final authority to all spiritual matters. But today there are some who are voicing great opposition against the Bible and are raising what appears to be serious objections that are creating doubts concerning its credibility. And these oppositions are becoming so loud that many who have grown up in the church reading and believing the Bible have been taken back by the volume of the opposition and now doubt the very accuracy or the authenticity of it. When we mention those one out of four Americans, 
two-thirds of that 25% of the American population had some relationship to Christianity at one time or another in their life. Two-thirds of that 25%. These are now considered skeptics. They have moved away from identifying themselves as people who identify themselves as Christians and have moved to a more skeptical position. But when it comes to the Bible, what exactly are their objections? Before we can begin to answer any question, we must know what the questions are. And they have three. Skeptics dismiss the idea that the Bible is holy or supernatural in any way. And that is the one that we will address today in our final session concerning the Bible. Two-thirds contend that it is simply a book of well-known stories and advice written by humans and containing the same degree of authority and wisdom as any other self-help book may contain. The remaining one-third are divided between those who believe that the Bible is a historical document that contains the unique but not God-inspired accounts and events that happened in the past and those who do not know what to make of the Bible, but have decided it deserves no special treatment or attention or consideration. However, though, given their empathy and their indifference towards the Bible, it is remarkable that six out of ten skeptics own at least one copy. Most of them have read it from time past, and a handful, almost exclusively agnostics, still read it at least once a month. In fact... Most skeptics have found some first-hand experience with the Bible, and most have had some regular exposure to it during their youth. What are the objections that people have made to you concerning the Bible? Have you heard from friends and family when you bring up the topic of the Bible? Well, that is just a work written by man. Or, the Bible is full of contradictions and errors. Or, it's simply a book containing a series of fictional stories and fairy tales. And some may be completely indifferent to its existence and say, I don't really care what the Bible has to say. It is these objections that we've been looking at in our last two series. In our first one together, we looked at the evidence behind the English translation that you hold in your hand this morning. And we established that we have a plethora of riches to support what we have in our laps today. Our second session looked at the Bible as a historical document. And we brought the Bible back to just moments after the actual events had occurred in history. Meaning that the first books of the Bible were written some 12 years after the actual events of the Bible. But yet we filled in the gap, those 12 years, where some, in higher criticism, would state that Christianity was distorted by the apostles or by someone else. And therefore, the written works that we have today don't uh, properly represent what actually took place when the events occurred. But we filled in that gap last week. But this morning, we must wrestle then with this last objection. And that is the objection of its supernatural origin and influence. Today, the subject matter of something being supernatural is a subject that is truly discussed greatly amongst people. 
Everything that our modern society looks at, they look through a lens of what is called naturalism. And they reject wholeheartedly the idea that anything outside of that box exists. What we have is what we naturally have here before us. There's nothing more. All we have is just what is found in our natural world. One wrote this. He says, Natural things are things we can see, touch, understand, and frequently manipulate. Nature, by definition, is the material world and its phenomena. So natural things are limited to things and conditions present in or produced by nature. That's a great definition of naturalism. All we have to look at to understand our world is everything that is contained in this box that we would call nature. The natural world. The physical world. And science, philosophy, and etc., they will dismiss the idea of the supernatural because they cannot qualify it. And therefore, since they cannot qualify it, they want to just readily dismiss it. But is that true? As a Christian, we hold dearly to the idea of the supernatural, that there is something more than just the natural world around us. And we're very thankful for that fact. But how do you prove it? For we haven't seen God, but we've seen the effects of God. We haven't seen the events recorded in the Bible, but we read about the events recorded in the Bible. Most have probably never seen a miracle firsthand. But yet, the Bible is replete with them. So what do you do to show and to establish that the supernatural exists? Now, all of us, I'm sure, as Christians can state within their testimony, some manner in which God worked supernaturally in your life, providing in a way that, is, that you can't explain, healing you in a way that you can't explain, or some other experience. But for most, they would just simply write that off to just, well, it's an anomaly. We can't understand it. But when we do understand it, I'm sure we can explain it away by natural causes. How do we then take the Bible, a book, that we showed to be historically accurate and a very, very reliable historical document, and then attach to it the supernatural influence of God? That's what we're going to look to proceed to do today. A daunting task that should take us about 12 to 18 hours. We hope you have nothing to do today. But I'd turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And within this verse, a claim is made about the Bible that needs to be substantiated. It is a claim that is so unique that the word used to describe the origin of the Bible is only used one time in the New Testament. It is a verse that you are probably very familiar with and you rely upon. It is a verse that you may have referenced to show and to demonstrate 
the supernatural origin of the Bible. It is a claim that must be wrestled with, as do all the claims of the Bible. If we read together, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul is claiming, the author of this letter to this young man named Timothy, that the Bible, the Scriptures, have been breathed out by God. It is a Greek word that is very difficult to pronounce, and depending on who you ask, there would be several opinions on how the word is pronounced. And the reason for its difficulty is because it's the only time that this word is found in the Scripture. Theophatos. God breathed. It is making a claim that is extraordinary. That the word, the graphi, the written word, is breathed out by God. To contextualize the definition of this word, we must have other examples of the usage of this word, which we have very few of in Greek. More secular than we do sacred. But if we go back into the Old Testament, we discover that a word that is similar to the contents of this word theophthos is found and is the word ruach, which means breath or spirit. And we see in the Old Testament that this word ruach was used by the Old Testament writers to describe the act of God during the process of creation to describe God in the act of revelation as the prophets spoke on his behalf. And it appears that those two lead us to our understanding of this New Testament usage of it and Paul's desired capture of this word here in this verse. For example, as we read through the Old Testament, we find this word ruach used that could be translated breath or spirit used in the process or the act of creation. For the psalmist writes in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Job wrote in Job 33, 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Or Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. But it was also used when it came to revelation through the Old Testament prophets. How God moved the prophets of the Old Testament by his Spirit to reveal himself. As Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 48, 16, Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. For the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Or Isaiah further went to say in Isaiah 61.1, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And even in the book of Joel, we read, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see vision. So in the usage of ruach, breath, spirit, in the Old Testament, we find creation and revelation and life. And I believe all three of those are used to define this word in the New Testament when Paul says all scripture, or some may translate it every scripture, is God-breathed, created, revealed, giving life. As one wrote concerning this, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, what is inspired is precisely the biblical writing. Inspiration is a work of God terminating not in the men who were to write the scripture as if he had given them an idea of what to say and then God left them to themselves to find a way to saying it, but in the actual written product is where we find this. It is scripture, graphi, the written text that God has breathed. The essential idea here is that scripture has the same character as the prophet's sermons had, both when preached and when written. In fact, Peter substantiates this in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by, along by the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packard wrote this, That is to say, Scripture is not only man's words, the fruit of the human thought, premeditation and art, but also and equally God's words spoken through man's lips or written with man's pen. In other words, Scripture has a double authorship. And man is only the secondary author, the primary author through who initiates, prompting an enlightenment, and under whose superintendence each human writer did his work, and that is through God, the Holy Spirit. So what we are saying is that as the Bible was being written by its different authors, God was moving them, not in a form of simple dictation, but in a form superior to that, which allowed for their style and their vocabulary and so forth. And he moved them exactly as he would want them to write and to speak. But any claim has to be substantiated, doesn't it? This is a claim that the Bible makes about itself that you and I as Christians embrace. We believe in the doctrine of biblical inspiration. We hold dearly to that fact. But can we demonstrate that fact for our skeptical friends? Can we show the supernatural element of the Bible to our skeptical friends to cause them a moment of pause to consider if truly the Bible is a supernatural work or just a natural work of man's hands? Again, anybody can claim anything. If I were to say to you that during my workout this week... I finally was able to bench press 750 pounds. 
Wow. Whoever just clapped, I love you for believing that. Most of you rational people would say to me, Pastor, we love you, but prove it. Right? That's a lot of weight. In fact, I don't know if anybody can bench press 750 pounds. Prove it. You've made the claim, okay, but this one seems a bit outlandish. So would you mind proving it? Well, let's try to demonstrate that. And I'm going to try to demonstrate the supernatural aspect of the Bible this morning in two ways. Two ways that I think would be intriguing to our skeptical friends. The first way is to demonstrate the Bible's understanding of science that predates man's understanding of science. Meaning that the Bible told us things about our natural world prior to us discovering those aspects of our natural world. Does that make sense? And secondly, since we're going to use science first, I thought the next intriguing method to show you and to demonstrate the supernatural element of God's Word was by using mathematics. And we're specifically going to focus in on that field of mathematics called probability. By demonstrating the fulfillment of prophecies made concerning the coming of Jesus that are found in the Old Testament and then fulfilled by him in the New Testament. And then applying mathematical probability to those events to find out how plausible they actually are. What are the odds, if you were, of those things occurring? And hopefully, by demonstrating through both of these means, we will give enough evidence to our skeptical friends to give them something to chew on, something to consider, without just readily dismissing the Bible as a book containing a bunch of fiction and fairy tales, something that was simply written by man and doesn't mean anything more than any of the other self-help books that we have out on our shelves today, or simply that it just is untrue. Let us begin by demonstrating how God revealed to us aspects of our natural world before it was even feasible for us to discover such things. We are learning so much about our natural world today in great leaps and bounds because of the advancement of technology. Technology gives us the aspect and the opportunity that we weren't afforded to have years ago. Think of how much technology has changed in the last 200 years. The last 100 years. How about the last 50 years? It's amazing to discover how much technology has changed. I love technology. I'm fascinated by it. And I'm really excited by the way Christians use technology for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, though, we are learning through technology about our natural world. Everything from the vastness of space to the complexity of the individual self. Technology has opened a door for us to peer into these things in our time to learn things that we 
never thought possible before. But you know what's interesting? Recently, we heard Richard Dawkins say that the Bible was just written by ignorant shepherds and peasants and desert dwellers. Well, that might be true in the fact that that's the hands in which God used. But we are going to discover that not only the first verse of the Bible demonstrates something to us that is so extraordinary, and believe it or not, that we've only discovered within the last 50 years. But we're also going to go back to 1800 B.C. into the book of Job and discover as God began to reveal to Job in chapter 38 and so forth on his understanding of creation. Why? Because he was the creator. He gave us insights 1,800 years before the coming of Christ. 3,800 years ago, God revealed certain aspects about our natural world that we are just currently discovering today. One of the most fascinating verses of the Bible is found in Genesis 1.1. It has been said that if you can believe Genesis 1.1, then almost any other portion of the Bible is easy to embrace. And of course, in that verse, God claims to be the creator of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, many will wrestle with this, and the conversations will often lead to the discussion of creation and evolution. But there are some who look beyond that discussion to a greater truth that is being revealed here, a truth that only up until the 1960s and 70s was embraced by our scientists today. In fact, the great astrophysicist himself, Stephen Hawking's, now agrees with what God said in Genesis 1.1. Not concerning the act of creation, but the beginning of time. Do you know that it was thought in standard circles of science and so forth up until the 1960s that time was eternal. I'm talking about physical, literal time was eternal. It had an eternal past and it had an eternal future. But now we are discovering that that is not so. That it had a beginning. That's what God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and in conjunction with that creation was the creation of time. In fact, even verses in the New Testament by Paul himself in 2 Timothy and in Titus talk about the salvation of each and every one of us being written before time began. As he writes, the, before the ages began. That is time. Stephen Hawkins was one on the front line who now brought to the scientific community in his famous lecture called The Beginning of Time, Stephen Hawking, the astrophysicist, said this, In this lecture, I would like to discuss whether time itself has had a beginning and whether it will have an end. 
All evidence seems to indicate that the universe and time has not existed forever, but that it had a beginning. And then he went on to say that beginning was 15 billion years ago. Well, he got half of it right. It had a beginning. Time began. What we took as an eternal constant we are now discovering had a beginning. God told us from the beginning, time had a beginning. There was an age before that he occupied. But then time, physical time, began. Throughout the Bible, we discover that the realm in which God exists is not subjected to this realm of physical time such as you and I are. One day is as a thousand years, as Peter put it. Or when the psalmist talks about God looking at all things at one time, beginning, middle, and the end. But the Bible clearly states that time had a beginning. And Stephen Hawkins is one that now agrees. Let's go back, though, even farther. Now, why do I say that? Well, Genesis was actually written after the book of Job. Even though it starts with the beginning of creation... And it is at the front of your Bible. I believe that Job, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And most scholars agree that it was written at about 1800 B.C. That would put it, of course, 1800 years before Christ, 2,000 years removed today, 3,800 years in total. But during Job's life, as God began to reveal himself to Job and revealed to Job the mysteries of creation that Job could have never discovered himself, it is fascinating to discover what Job had learned by God. For example, throughout history, especially in ancient civilizations, astronomers always believed that the moon was a source of light in and of itself that it generated light in and of itself. Now you and I know today that the moon at night when it shines is merely reflecting the sun itself, correct? That there is no energy there whatsoever. It is simply reflecting energy that is coming from another source. But that's exactly what God said. In Job 25 verses 5 and 6, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, I'm sorry, and the son of man who is a worm. The word bright there in verse 5 means it does not radiate. It is not a source of light in and of itself. That is revealed to us 3,800 years ago by God to Job. If that wasn't fascinating enough, As we come to Job 38, where God finally begins to answer Job in his consistent pleas and cries, it's fascinating to read the mysteries of creation that are discovered in Job 38. In Job 38, verse 7, we learn something that, again, we may have never known. Something that we might have just slipped over very quickly. And until the 1950s, We would have just dismissed this as hyperbole or a metaphor of some sort. But Job 38.7 states, When the morning stars sang together, 
And all the sons of God shouted for joy. It is a claim that stars produce sound. Now again, we would have read that a hundred years ago and just written it off as just some picture that God was painting for Job. But we have discovered now that stars make noise. Did you know that? It's a pulsation. And one of the stars that we have recorded, that NASA has recorded, and Brian, if you'll put it up there for us, is the star Alpha Centauri. This is from NASA, and Brian, if you will, will you play what a star sounds like? And turn it up for the audience. This is the sound that Alpha Centauri makes. Interesting, huh? God told Job that the stars sang. What's interesting is that a Christian, and I wish I would have had this for you, a Christian has put up a website and he has taken sounds from different stars and has made a musical composition. It's very fascinating. But it was revealed to Job that stars have some kind of sound. And that's what we've shown you and demonstrated now. Well, let's go from the skies to the seas. Can you imagine 1,800 years before Christ how vast the oceans must have seemed? You know, the whole world is shrinking today because our forms of transportation allow us to move so easily from one continent to another. But in the days of Job, standing on the seashore must have been a daunting experience, seeing the vastness of it let alone seeing anything below it. In Job 38, 16, God says to him, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, have you seen the springs of water coming from the bottom of the ocean floors? Have you walked in the valleys of the ocean floors? something that Job couldn't have possibly ever experienced for himself, now we know that there are vast springs coming from the bottom of the ocean because we've been there. And we have seen that there are vast ravines and valleys found in the ocean floor. There's no way Job in writing could have ever predicted such a thing. 3,800 years ago, God gave him a glimpse of nature that was unknown to himself. That is Job. Now your skeptical friends may think, well, maybe Job fashioned a snorkel, swam down to the bottom, saw it for himself, and then was chased out by a megalodon. Moving from water to light up until the 1600s, it was thought that light was instantaneous. That when a light shined, its illumination reached its vast different points instantaneously. Of course, we know that light moves and travels. And a beam of light can be followed back to its source. We know that now. Job knew it back then. In Job 38, 19 through 20, 
as God continues to reveal the mysteries of his creation to Job. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it into its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? Showing that light travels and there is a path, a predictable path in which it takes another aspect of science, a revelation of the mysteries of creation given to someone who couldn't have possibly discovered that for himself. But we continue. Let us go back now to the heavens itself, where Job discovered that certain stars were clustered together and those stars would remain in those clusters for all time. We know those clusters today as what? Constellations. Job 38, 31-33. Can you bind the chains of Pilates or loosen the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Masorite in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Can you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Meaning, you can't change what I have fixated in heaven. And I've placed there. And those cannot be moved. That's what God's saying here. Even the constellations are being revealed by God to Job. But I think one of the aspects of the mystery of creation that God gave to Job, that we are all thankful for today and is allowing us to sit here today in the nation in which we occupy, is found in Job 26.10. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundaries between light and darkness, which would mean the horizon. He has inscribed a circle. Do you realize what that is saying? What shape must one have in order for boundaries of light and darkness to take a circular shape? A sphere. The Bible taught taught a spherical earth thousands of years before it was discovered. An individual who came to to this world, Christopher Columbus, preceded and was motivated by these words found in the book of Isaiah. Do you not know? Do you not hear Isaiah 40, 21 through 23? It has not been told for you from the beginning. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and to make the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The circle of the earth. Of course, everybody thought the earth was flat and you were going to fall off. But here we have the revelation and the understanding that the world was circular, a sphere, before it could have ever been known by man. Christopher Columbus tested that, proved that, and obviously we sit here today because of that. Now these are just some of the aspects in which science is shared with us about the mysteries of creation before it was possible for anyone to discover those things on their own. Supernatural or natural. Even if Job was written 2,000 years ago, 
supernatural or natural. Even if Job was written 1,000 years ago, supernatural or natural. These are the questions we must ask our skeptical friends to wrestle with. But then let's then move to mathematical probability. The odds. So what is probability? Probability, also known as odds, is a branch of mathematics that measures the likelihood that a given event will occur. To begin with, let's look at some interesting odds, okay? Odds. Now, if you've ever gone to Las Vegas, Sin City, I have to question if you're a Christian. No. My point is, is that that entire city and the gaming industry in which it entails is built upon probability, odds, gambling. But when it comes down to probability, we then decide what is probable or is unlikely. Let me give you some statistics. Some of these will hit home. Being struck by lightning in a year, you have one chance in 700,000 to be struck by lightning in one year. Being killed by lightning in one year, you have one in two million chances of that occurring. Becoming president of the United States, you have one in 10 million chances of becoming president. A meteorite landing on your home, and I hope all of you weren't waiting for this event, you have one in 180, uh, then with 14 zeros following it, of a meteorite landing on your head. So if you bought that insurance, you might want to get a refund. What are the chances of an individual dying? One out of one. These are probabilities. Many of these shows that being struck by lightning or becoming president or being killed by lightning or a meteorite hitting our house is very unlikely, extremely unlikely. But each of us facing our own mortality is completely likely. So now let us take a look at the mathematical probability of events that have been prophesied in the Old Testament, meaning things that are stated that the Messiah will do, that Christ will do when he comes. And let's find out how likely one individual is in fulfilling those prophecies. Now, depending on who you read... There is anywhere from 333 to 432 prophecies that could be fulfilled. I personally hold to the lower number because many of them overlap. So the mathematical probability of one individual fulfilling all 333 is so astronomically out of our range of understanding that it gives us a number so big that we can't even contend with it. So what you have to do then to bring down the sample size is just that. We have to lessen it to a manageable amount. And mathematicians have said, let's take eight prophecies of the Old Testament, finding out what the probability of each one of those prophecies are in one person fulfilling, and then summing up the entirety. Summing up the entirety. In Micah 5.2, the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2. The chances of that happening were 1 in 280,000. Malachi 3.1 states that there will be a forerunner to Jesus Christ. And there was a forerunner recorded for us in Mark chapter 1. And that was John the Baptist. And there was one in 1,000th chance of that occurring. Christ entering Jerusalem on a donkey is predicted in Zechariah 9.9. Christ entering into Jerusalem on a donkey occurred in Matthew 21. And you had one in 100 chances of that occurring. Christ to be betrayed by a friend, Psalm 41.9. Judas betrayed Jesus in Luke 22, and we discovered that they had a one in one thousandth chance of that succeeding. Christ being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11.12. Judas sold our, our Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Matthew 26, and there was a one in one thousandth chance of that occurring. 30 silver pieces cast down and used to buy a potter's field also is prophesied for us in Zechariah 11.13. 30 pieces of silver were used to buy a potter's field in Matthew 27. There was one chance in 100,000 attempts of that occurring. Although innocent, Christ kept silent when he was on trial. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Jesus kept silent one question, Mark 14. You had a one in 1,000th chance of that happening. Christ crucified, Psalm twenty-two sixteen, was of course depicted in John 19, and you had one in 10,000th chance of that occurring. That's eight. And we are already on the, the scale leaning towards unlikely. But now, to give us a true picture, it wasn't sufficient that Christ just fulfilled one of these or one of the 333, he needed to fill all eight, all 333. Now understand that these statistics were done by secular students of a secular university that were assigned this by their professor. And as they wrestled through this, they had to then take what would the probability look like of one man fulfilling Eight of these prophecies, let alone 333. Individually, yes, we can see that there is a chance of probability. But what about all eight? And then if you factor in the number of years that Jesus lived and all of that, it becomes even more remarkable. But I would like to show you and demonstrate for you what it looks like. Brian, if you will. This is what it looks like. To answer the question of what is the probability of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies, the principle of probability is applied. Therefore, multiplying all eight probabilities together, 1 times 2.8 times 10 to the 5th times 10 to the 3rd, so forth, gives us uh, 2.8 times 10 to the 28th power. Or 1 in 10 with 28 zeros followed. Is that probable or improbable? And yet, Christ perfectly fulfilled all eight of these prophecies. And I'll tell you, uh, spoiler alert coming, he fulfilled all the 333 other ones too. 
Through science and through math, I believe we have demonstrated for most people the supernatural element of the Bible. That God told us beforehand what actually is in his creation. Job, for example, standing on the sea could have never seen the valleys or the springs. Standing in the desert looking up, he could have never discovered the stars and the universe being as what they are. He could have never even looked at the horizon and known that he stood on a sphere rather than a vertical plane. Take into consideration Genesis. Take into consideration other portions where science is revealed to us. In fact, Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a jet stream that moves across the face of the earth. Science revealed to us before we could have ever known these things for ourselves. Then we look at mathematics. Science and mathematics. I don't know what skeptic wouldn't respect either one of those fields. And then we ask them to consider what are the probability of these prophecies that are given hundreds of years in advance and fulfilled in one person at one time in a man who lived just 33 years. It's outstanding. I believe that this evidence will give your skeptical friends a moment of pause. Something that they have to chew on. Something that they have to go back and reinvestigate for themselves. And hopefully it'll be an open door to allow you to share with them the most powerful message that can ever be shared with anybody by anyone, and that is the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the meta narrative from the beginning to the end of the Bible. It's all about Jesus. We have demonstrated in these three sessions the evidence behind the Bible, number one. Number two, we demonstrated the historical aspect of the Bible as it being a reliable historical document. And today I believe we have substantiated the supernatural aspect of it.